HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. This show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people who we have the great fortune of learning from on a regular basis. On today's show, we welcome Tanya Wenman-Steele, who is the CEO of Cooking Up Big Dreams and serves as our own Award Director for the Julia Child Award. In this episode, we'll learn what it's like to bring a group of kids to dinner at the White House with Michelle Obama, We'll go behind the scenes of the Julia Child Award. And our last segment, we'll hear Tanya's Julia moment. So stay tuned to find out what exactly is a Julia moment. On each episode of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we're going to launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was passionate that being able to cook was vital to living a healthy and fulfilled life. Many of you may be familiar with hearing Julia say, everything in moderation, even moderation. She was quoting Oscar Wilde, but also firmly believed that life wasn't about restricting yourself from certain things, but that balance was really the key. Julia also understood that it was critical to learn these things at as young an age as possible, especially since she herself was a late bloomer. That's why I'm excited to talk to Tanya about her quest to help kids learn to cook, next on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Welcome to the podcast, Tanya. Thanks so much, Todd. It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here and to get talking to you about all the many interesting things you do. So before we get into the kid stuff, um, I want to ask you about your past life, not your past lives, but just one of your past professional lives. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I know you you would probably never say this, but I will say it for you. You were instrumental in the development of Condé Nast's successful recipe-centric website, Epicurious, which certainly in the early days of the internet was one of the go-to sites for recipes. So I wanted to ask you, what were those Halcyon days like? And, and what do you think now today represents the cutting edge of food websites? Oh, well, thanks, Todd. I, I feel just so um, lucky to have been kind of there towards the beginning of um, the digital landscape, uh, not just in food, but in in the world at large. Um, I came to Epicurious, I think, in 2005, and at that point it had been a lovely um, home to Gourmet, Bon Appetit, and The Traveler, Connie Ness Traveler, um, basically reposting their content from the magazines and building a recipe database. So it was so exciting to be given the opportunity to um, take a little team and a little bit of money and start to grow it. And I'll remember um, there were so many, now looking back, so many fun things that, that began that, you know, what, while you're in the middle of them, you don't really know what they are. So, for instance, I was in a meeting once and somebody came in and said, well, we've just talked to Apple and they're developing something called a smartphone and they want us to make something called an app. And we were all like, what's an app? How do, <laughs> how do we develop something? We don't even know what it is. Um, so just being kind of on the forefront of that was just very exciting, uh, and creating what ended up being one of the most popular food apps, um, in the world was really a big thrill. Uh, so I just feel really lucky to, um, have been there at, at that time. What, what do you think it was that, that made Epicurious, because there was so much going on and people were still learning, do you think it was the connection that you were sort of coming out of the following of those leading food magazines? Yes, it was, you know, a very um, interesting time because when I w- first got there, most people were just literally copying and pasting the content that was that were in magazines at that time. So the notion of creating whole content just for the web uh, to, to speak and think and feel correct and suitable for the web was a new concept. Um, so it was a, gr- a great moment because we could be as creative as we wanted to. Um, we had to figure out how to communicate via the web, realizing that it was more visual, that we needed you know, shorter introductions, shorter words, that, in fact, SEO really had to play a big uh, role in everything that we did, uh, which is search engine optimization, uh, for those of you who don't know, and that videos mm-hmm. really uh, play well to the form. So all of those things were learnings that we had that um, are very evident today. I mean, that's kind of how every website and content producer builds their content. Do do you think, do you also sort of credit that smartphone emergence and that opportunity as one of the impetuses to get people to think of, think more about original content for the web rather than cutting, pasting from print? I think definitely uh, the phone has changed the way we consume media and content and the way we think about it. Um, so absolutely, yes. Um, you know, now I think 60 or 70% of web traffic is from phones, and I think that will only go up um, uh, as people just become more and more uh, used to looking at small screens rather than larger screens. Um, in fact, you know, you know, our kids, Todd, are 
will always prefer to read things on their phones <laughs> instead of a piece of paper or um, even a larger screen. It just seems normal to them. So Yes, anything that's handheld, as, as, as long as it can be handheld. It might not be a phone, but as long as it's handheld and not sitting Right, exactly. So do you think, should I reframe my question? Do you think the cutting edge of food websites is actually not a website, but some kind of app or platform on a phone? Is it is it Snapchat food? I think that the cutting edge uh, will, and, and I think for, forever on now, remain social media uh, for, for content and food content specifically. Um, because at the end of the day, there's been a paradigm shift as to... Um, who you trust and, and um, respect, and it is no longer top-down content from publishers and experts. It's now from your friends. So um, that social media is the way to get that. Um, it's the way to interact with each other, to show your own, you know, great cooking skills, um, and to you know to show off, to show them off. So I think that that is and will remain for for a long time to come the way that people really interact with uh, food content. So so if you're out there and you're thinking or you work for some sort of media company that is looking at a food web kind of platform, you think that's a key way to think about it is how it's going to be pre- presented and used via social media in a sort of peer-to-peer way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that everyone uh, in my field now thinks mobile first, um, social second, um, and and things like destination websites are kind of fading into, you know, their um, internet startup days glory. Uh, you know, it's it's especially with the way that Facebook is now about to change their algorithms to showcase uh, content that is really just, uh, you know, friend first rather than um, publisher. Uh, so that in your feeds you'll see things that your friends have posted much more than you'll see. Anything that, you know, the New York Times or the Journal or whoever you're reading uh, will be uh, posting. So that will, I think, even solidify even further this notion that, um, you know, it's all about you and your friends rather than what other authorities and experts are telling you. Which, you know, there's good things about that and there's bad things about that. Yeah, maybe we'll save that for another discussion. But I, but I, I think that the net I'm getting from that is the the cutting edge in food websites today is that it's not a website. That's exactly true. Yes. Okay. I I, I got that out of my system. So now uh, now uh, let's talk about kids and cooking and a subject that I know you're really passionate about. So my first question is really, where does your passion for that subject, given that Epicurious was not kid centric, where does that come from? You know, I actually trace it all back to Julia Child. Um, my family is from England, and my mother, God love her, she makes fabulous tea and coffee, but really not that much else. I mean, she's really, you know, she can do some toast. But um, when we came to this country when I was a kid, uh, I realized pretty quickly on that this was not going to be, that food was good, but I wasn't getting good food. <laughs> so um, I watched PBS, um, and they were showing reruns of The French Chef. Uh, and so Julia Child really inspired me to, you know, as an eight-year-old, to start to cook. Um, and that inspiration has led me to get other kids of that same age range to, to get into the kitchen and be creative and be confident and, you know, kind of taste and travel the world through the kitchen 
and feel good about themselves and as a secondary um, attribute to um, eat healthfully because the more you cook for yourself, the, the more you can control what you eat and you can um, eat as healthfully as possible if you so choose. Yeah, no, I think I think that was something Julia really advocated. It, it, you can't really lead a healthy life. It's very difficult to lead a healthy lifestyle if you don't know how to cook and you never cook for yourself. Exactly. Even if you do use the amount of butter that Julia loved, which I do sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think, you know, cooking competition shows have, have, have also, I think, hopefully showed people who watch them when a chef is trying to make a dish to, you know, impress the judges, they use... A, an amount of butter or oil on a piece, you know, on a steak that generally I certainly wouldn't use at home, and maybe Julia wouldn't have even used. You know, the, the, there that is a dirty secret to flavor, which is it involves lots of fat. Exactly, and salt too. It's always kind of shocking to be in, you know, a Michelin starred uh, kitchen and to see the amount of, of salt and butter that chefs are using. So to be able to control your own health and your own destiny. Um, it's really imperative that you get into the kitchen and cook for yourself as much as possible. So as part of that inspiration, going back to the beginning, and what I was mentioning about the value of starting as young as possible, which, which you can always sort of tell Julia regretted a bit. When you were at Epicurious, you created something, and hopefully I've gotten it right, the Healthy Lunchtime Challenge and Kid State Dinner, which was a recipe competition for kids from all 50 states that culminated in the winners attending a state dinner of sorts at the White House, hosted by none other than the former First Lady Michelle Obama. So I, so if you can describe for our listeners what exactly is a kid's state dinner and, and what's it like to attend one? Yeah, it was such a, an incredible, uh, surreal, beautiful experience to um, have done this. We did it for five years. Um, we had the first one in 2012, I believe, and um, 2011. And uh, I, I was just, uh, just so surprised that they um, allowed us to take what was an initial concept by me and take it like to 10 levels above anything I could have ever imagined. It was really um, an amazing experience, not just for myself, but for the parents and for the children who, who would win, um, because they were treated like the dignitaries that they are, the um, Good Food Ambassadors, and they would be announced uh, through the um, lobby in the way that the Prime Minister of India is announced or whomever the, the visiting dignitaries for state dinners are announced. Um, and we would all go up to the public first floor um, and have different activities. Um, the uh, uh, the um, band would play, the army band, um, with so the beautiful music, and the decorations were spectacular, and they were always revolved around um, food, healthy food, like apple displays and just beautiful things that the White House decorators thought up. And what what was the, that reminds me to ask you what the menu was? The menu was made up of the the, the the kids' recipes, wasn't it, or or is that wrong? Yes, it was. Yes, the menu was made up of six or seven of the winning dishes um, that complemented each other. So, the smoothies and the and the appetizers and the the entrees with the sides and the desserts, they were all the kids' winning recipes. So, um, And we printed their names on the menus and, and gave them credit. Um, and then it was, the food was, I assume, all prepared like any state dinner in the White House kitchen? Yes, absolutely. This, the White House chefs prepared all of the uh, meals, and uh, it came out in livery service, as it does at every state dinner. Um, Mrs. Obama spoke, and I spoke, and a child spoke at them. And the president came out, um, I think, at every single one and said a few words and shook um, kids' hands and 
Um, the kids also had an opportunity to take a picture with Mrs. Obama that they got to keep. So it was a really amazing day. And then it all ended by a visit to the kitchen gardens um, out on the South Lawn of the White House, which are amazing. Um, they grow tons of things like kale and broccoli and Brussels sprouts and tomatoes, and they have um, a beehive. So um, it was just a really wonderful day. And kids went on to um, be so inspired by this event that they have done things like have hunger conferences, um, kid-led hunger conferences, have started uh, health initiatives around kids' healthy eating. They've done YouTube channels. They've just gone on to do amazing things and to inspire not only their friends and family and community, but the world at large. So it's, it's, it's blossomed into a beautiful initiative. So is the, is the kitchen garden on the South Lawn, or it's also on the roof of the White House? It's on the South Lawn. I don't think, actually, I know there was going to be a rooftop garden um, at some point, and there might have been in World War II, if memory serves correctly, but um, it's just on the South Lawn now. I see. That's my, my faulty memory or reading the wrong thing. I, I'm, I'm glad to have it from a source who, who's been in it and knows for sure. <laughs> so you, you were actually starting to talk about this. Do, do you think that the kids' state dinner and the health, particularly the Healthy Lunchtime Challenge, do you think it's had an impact on what seems to be a perilous state of kids' health and eating habits today, or, or how do you think it's been perceived? I do think it's it's made an impact. I think Mrs. Obama's um, giving it a uh, kind of a national prominence and an international prominence has really helped, especially with kids that are younger. Um, so high school kids uh, were kind of on the cusp of this movement, but Younger kids are definitely very aware of the need and importance of eating healthfully. That doesn't mean that we all, you know, that they do or we all practice it um, as much as we would like, but there is definitely now uh, an understanding of the importance um, that children have now of, of why they should be eating healthfully. And it's very important that we always, when we talk about this, that we always emphasize the notion of being strong and being your best self rather than, you know, losing weight or diabetes or whatever it is, it's important to kind of emphasize the positive. Um, and, you know, we should all be eating healthfully so that we can be our best selves. Well, no, I mean, that's a great a great message in that, it, yeah, how it contributes to, again, leading an overall fulfilling life than necessarily conforming to any one one image as long as you're you're healthy. So what's happening with the Healthy Lunchtime Challenge program now? Well, since Mrs. Obama left, uh, we have not uh, picked it up with the new administration, um, but I have actually moved it, uh, uh, something that is kind of a similar project to Canada, uh, where we have started something called Kid Food Nation, which is uh, a curriculum, a healthy eating curriculum, uh, a lot of um, television uh, and online spots about healthy eating with YTV and also a... Um, a gala as well, which we had in Ottawa, and Sophie Trudeau uh, did the introductions via televised uh, feed, which is great. So the Trudeaus are involved with this. And I'm now in discussions with the um, Scottish government to do something there. So I'm hoping to make this kind of a worldwide movement. Um, so, you're, so, you're, so it's also sort of a collection of progressive world leaders. Exactly, exactly. And I, I feel like the more countries I can take this notion to um, the better, uh, you know, the more impact I can have, you know, kid by kid, 
uh, who will then have their own impact in their own community. So it's, you know, it's throwing a stone into a, a lake and the, the puddle, you know, the, the rings of the, the stone go out and out and out and you keep affecting more and more people. So the more I can do, the, the happier I am. Well, that's a great, great segue too to my next question. So as you're, you're spreading the gospel through this, you know, both exciting and educational program, which I think is a great thing that also Julia represented, is how do you bring together the fun of food with the learning of food and make it enjoyable? And and I think the more that it's enjoyable, the more that it sticks with you. So I, I know you're writing a new book for National Geographic Kids on the history of cooking. So tell us, when does that come out? And is it a cookbook or is it a, a different type of animal? Yeah, I am so super excited about this good book. It's called Food Fight, A Mouthwatering History of Who Ate What and Why. Um, and it literally traces how we ate, what we, um, how we got ingredients, you know, how we hunted, how we cooked, uh, what tools we used. Um, and then it gives uh, some sample recipes from each era. And I've gone from the prehistoric era, um, ancient Egypt, ancient Rome, ancient Greece, uh, all the way up to 14 of the most important historical moments in the world to 2050, where I kind of conjecture as to what we'll be eating on Mars. So it's been this extremely fun project, um, just so much fun to research, and I've tried to imbue it with humor and uh, you know speak to the kid um, and make it exciting and interesting to them. I've talked about what a kid's day uh, would be during that time. So that... So the reader will really be able to place themselves in the, you know, Renaissance or during the Mongols or, um, you know, during the Industrial Revolution when kids were working in factories, that kind of thing, uh, and get them excited not only about um, eating healthfully and cooking, but also getting excited about history, which is equally important uh, to me to, to get kids to understand why history is important and to kind of look back so they can look forward. And when will the book be in stores? It's going to be out September 11th, I believe, of this year on, on Amazon. So order it, pre-order it soon. <laughs> we want to make it a big bestseller. And, and, and does it have recipes in it too, or it's just a, a narrative with, it, with different anecdotal stories? It does. It has uh, two recipes from each era. Uh, so they're inspired by there, or they're actually authentic recipes that I've just adapted a little bit um, so uh, we've added some ingredients that are maybe not necessarily were used then but are used now just to keep it healthy. Um, but, yeah, there's 30 recipes, and all of the recipes were tested by kids. Um, so I know that these recipes work, that kids can do them, and I ha- include some quotes from kids who have tested them. Wow. Well, that's a pretty exciting repertoire of things to get kids into cooking and hope hopefully inspiring them not only lead healthier lives to be, to be lifelong cooks, which I know would have made Julia very happy as her inspiration. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Tanya is going to take us behind the scenes of the Julia Child Award. And then lastly, reveal her own personal Julia moment. We'll be right back.
Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. One of the nice things about Bob's Red Mill is it's the only that I know of national supplier that's easily available for lots of interesting, hard-to-get grains and other seed products. So, you know, before Bob's Red Mill became widely available, you couldn't go get something like quinoa very easily, or you couldn't go get spelt easily in small quantities. But now you go to any one of the huge number of stores that carry Bob's Red Mill, and you can get smaller amounts of these really interesting, fun things to play with. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. We're back to take you behind the scenes of the Julia Child Award. While many people know Julia as a TV personality and cooking teacher, you may not know that Julia mentored a large number of people who went on to successful careers as chefs, cooking teachers, television personalities, and food writers. She also devoted a great deal of time to supporting many different aspects of the food industry as a whole, whether it's helping found the AIWF, which was the American Institute for Wine and Food, still is, or supporting the growth of the IACP, which is the International Association of Culinary Professionals, or even just singing the praises of California winemakers. So Julia's example really inspired the foundation to create the Julia Child Award in 2015 to help in its mission to further Julia's legacy. The foundation's trustees wanted to use the award to encourage people to cook for themselves and also to shine a spotlight on the best people in all parts of the food world who are following closely in Julia's footsteps. That means it goes to someone who is, in various ways, an educator, mentor, innovator, and trailblazer, as well as someone who also gives back to the community in a significant way. So basically, it's a very tall order. It's only for exceptional people, just as Julia was. So the first three recipients have been Chef Jacques Pepin, Chef Rick Bayless, and this year, restaurateur Danny Meyer of Union Square Hospitality Group, known most recently for his decision to eliminate tipping in his restaurants, and he's also one of the founders of, of the very popular burger joint, Shake Shack. And so the award comes with a grant of $50,000 that is made by the foundation, and then the recipient gets to choose a food-related nonprofit to receive the grant. The, the award is presented at a gala fundraising dinner for food history programming at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C., um, also the home of Julia's Kitchen. And that event, that gala, kicks off the museum's food history weekend. So back to talking to Tanya Steele, who is the award director for the Julia Child Award. Tanya, why do you think the jury selected Jacques, Rick, and Danny as the first recipients? You know, um, they all exemplified all the incredible qualities that Julia exemplified. So um, everything from bridge builder and communi- communicator to um, being a great educator um, and uh, inspirational force for good. Um, so uh, Danny Meyer, for as you just said, who won this year, um, or rather uh, 2017, um, he had a profound influence on the way that restaurants are run, the way that uh, restaurateurs treat diners, the way that wait staff are treated by their employers. Um, he uh, had a tremendous influence on a renaissance uh, part uh, uh, of the neighborhood of Union Square in New York City, um, helping to kind of reinvigorate that neighborhood. Um, he made uh, burgers kind of upscale and, and but mass all at the same time with Shake Shack. So he keeps kind of raising the bar up and up and up. 
uh, in the hospitality industry. And so when we considered the, uh, you know, the many exceptional people that could win uh, the Julia Child Award, he seemed to kind of really just stand head and shoulders above everyone else because he really did hit every criteria that we had. Uh, likewise, Rick um, Bayless really brought Mexican cuisine to um, America, providing us with a context and an appreciation for Mexico, Mexico's uh, sophisticated and you know delicious and healthy um, and yummy cuisine. Yeah, I like how you were saying that the up and up and up. I, I think that's a great mnemonic for it because I was just thinking about when the you, even maybe well maybe it was during the de- deliberation, but when the jury selected Rick, he he was in the middle of like opening two or three restaurants at the same time, even though he still was running other wildly successful restaurants as you know, as the you know, executive chef, and that, that's still a pretty only someone with a certain kind of. Uh, desire and commitment is is going to push themselves to do that much more. That's so true. And and that's an important point about the Julia Child Award is it's not a lifetime achievement award. It's really celebrating uh, someone who's at the pinnacle of their career and um, is someone who's continuing to, to build and um, increase the power um, and importance of what they're doing. Uh, so Rick absolutely is doing that. He's continuing to open up restaurants continuing to do his PBS show, um, and he also has a fantastic foundation, um, Frontier Farmer Foundation, which helps Midwest farmers. Uh, so he's doing something incredibly important by helping to, um, you know, support the efforts that uh, farmers are doing uh, in this country. Uh, Jacques Pepin is another instance. Um, he may be older than the other two recipients, but he's still plugging away um, and doing what he does best, which is to really kind of get people in the same way that Julie did, really excited about sharing uh, food, about cooking together, about families, about getting into the kitchen. And, of course, he shared a love of French food that that Julia had. So he was also an obvious no, I remember he he was literally wrapping up another season of his television show. He launched a, a new uh, dinnerware line at Sur La Table, which is really lovely because not only did he launch it, he designed it, uh, literally the drawings. And many people may not realize that he's an artist in his own right and painter and makes beautiful watercolors and things like that. And again, just the list where you're like, when are these people sleeping? That's right. It makes me feel like a lazy sloth when I, you know, go through what all of these potential nominees are, are do every day. It's incredible. Um, it does take a village, um, but uh, there are all these these award winners are all doing spectacular things. So, so take us into the the jury deliberation room, and I know a lot of it is is, is kind of secret. But in in terms of what you can share with us, you know, how, how does the jury choose? Where, where do they find the, the up and up and up, and how do they make their selection? Yes, well, we have, um, I think we've got it down to a, a really good, efficient, uh, robust process. Um, I create a short list of candidates that all of whom uh, meet almost all of the criteria, if not all of it, um, and I circulate it to the jury two weeks beforehand for them to read all of the research that I've uh, found on each of the candidates that is as most up-to-date as possible. 
we then meet for a few hours. Um, usually it's in Washington, D.C. or New York City, or it's uh, also been in Los Angeles. And we deliberate. Uh, we lock ourselves in a room for, you know, three hours or four hours. Um, we have some sustenance there, so <laughs> some sandwiches and brownies to keep us going. And we go through each candidate um, and discuss them at, in depth and at length. Um, and at the end of it, we go down the criteria for each and make sure that they're, they're all um, hitting every bar. And then we vote. Um, and sometimes it takes three or four rounds of voting uh, to come up with what has always been a unanimous choice. And so every year when, you, when you've when you done this, now you've done it three times and coming up on the fourth for 2018, has the, the end decision been the one that you kind of anticipated going into the room? No. Um, sometimes I've thought, okay, this person's obviously going to win, and then it's been someone completely out of left field, like the person uh, that I put on the list that I thought, I'm just putting this person on the list because it's an interesting choice. Um, so I have been surprised. Um, but, you know, people's arguments uh, for or against someone are very impassioned and very eloquent and um, learned. So um, it's easy to understand, you know, how at the end of the day we get to the decision that we do once you've followed all of the different, you know, kind of back and forth. Um, and it is very, it is a very passionate um, discussion. I mean, we're all very invested in the process. Um, we often say to ourselves, what would Julia think? What would Julia do? Um, because, we, you know, we're very much, we, all of the jury pool uh, knew her, um, and so we feel like we're able to kind of channel her vision um, as, as well as ours while we're selecting. And how do you think, I think that's a good way to move from the jury room to the public, and once it gets announced, and um, with the program of the presentation with the National Museum of American History, how do you think the award's been received? It's still relatively new. It's only going into its fourth year, with both within the food industry and, and, and by the public. You know, considering it's a, f- a relatively new award, um, I feel like the Julia Child Award has been received extremely well. It's gotten... So much publicity, um, both within the industry and in the kind of the, just the general food world at large, um, uh, it, it's gotten very quickly uh, become renowned and uh, known by many people. So um, I'm now getting pitched all the time by PR people saying, you know, you should consider my client who has made significant impact in the way that uh, Americans cook and eat today and drink. Um, and, uh, I'm just, when I just, um, out at conferences, um, meet, talking to other food writers, they often will bring it up and say how incredible it is and what an amazing thing it is that the winner gets that $50,000 grant to further their efforts, um, to help the world. Because that really does make this award, um, unusual and significant, um, because very few awards actually come with money attached that the winner can then use to the greater good. So that's something that makes it particularly special. And then even in the, in the general food population, um, just general people I talk to, um, they always say, oh my gosh, I love Julia Child. And then they um, often will mention that they saw somewhere, you know, on television or read about it online or in a newspaper that, you know, 
about the person who just won the award. So I think that the awards renown is really growing. So that's very satisfying. Yeah, that, that that is great to hear about, especially that people are absorbing part of that up and up and up message of both celebrating what the person of significance is achieving and giving back, as well as the 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 component of the grant being able to help them um, a- achieve more, basically. Exactly. So, what do you think? What do you see into your um, personal crystal ball about uh, where the awards going in the years to come? You know, I think it'll only continue to grow in importance and renown, and um, I hope it'll inspire others to think about ways that they can help uh, further, you know, the the causes that Julia believed in, which are, you know, to celebrate and appreciate the pleasures of the table. And um, I think that it'll also, hopefully the winners will inspire others to be their best selves in the way that we were just talking about getting kids to be their best selves. So um, I, I think all of those things will happen, and, and I'd like to think that um, in terms of award food awards in general, this will you know become one of the most important in the industry. And so, after three years of of of, of you helping support the award and the foundation to to make it happen, is it becoming old hat, or do you, do you still find it exciting? Oh no, I completely find it exciting. I I really do feel uh, jazzed every time I think about. Uh, you know who could potentially win for this coming year, and I and I track people's careers to to see who's doing things that are notable. Um, so I, I I feel like it's it, it never gets old. It gets just more exciting. Well, that is that is also very great to hear because uh, we we definitely enjoy uh, working on it and couldn't could not absolutely could not do it without you. It's just been such a, a treat, and for me personally to have started. You know, with Julia as such an inspiration for me as a kid, it's so nice to kind of go full circle and be able to work on something that is very much, you know, for her and embodied by her. Well, again, another perfect setup for what we're going to do next. So when we come back, Tanya is going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. Like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. in the kitchen who is going to see in our last segment which we like to call the julia moment we ask our guests to share their favorite julia memory moment or how she has inspired them in her in their career and tanya's kind of already talked about that but i'm going to give her the formal opportunity to decide which of maybe her many choices is her julia moment so tanya over to you you know, um, I've been so lucky to have met her several times, um, and uh, I have a lot of memories of of her speaking, uh, which are just, it's so distinctive, and, you know, Todd, when you and I um, get into a, 
uh, a meeting with some others, we start to, you know, imitate her. It's just so infectious, her her voice and her, um, just the way she spoke. Yes, it, it's very hard not to. Some, 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 some people find it impossible not to. But um, I think that out of the many times that I got to meet her, uh, my favorite Julie moment was the first time I met her because I was uh, an editor at Food and Wine at the time. So I'm going to say this was the late 80s. Um, or early 90s, and I was when in you were a child office right. cubicle and uh, probably fact-checking an article by Robert Parker, uh, if memory serves, and um, I heard her voice, you know, kind of three cubicles down, and I thought, oh, my God, no way! You know, I couldn't believe it. Uh, in the flesh, I could hear my hero, um, and I could hear her talking and, you know, with her high-pitched voice and laughing and um, so I just froze, you know, oh my gosh, this, she's really here. You know, I didn't know she was coming. So I kind of peeked out and I could see her and it was so exciting. So I stood at the, the, um, door of my cubicle and waited till she walked over. And as she walked over, she came and she was still very tall. Um, at that time, she was probably in her eighties or something. Um, and she, uh, was taller than I, she was probably six foot or six foot one. It's, it's still at that point. And she came over and so sweetly shook my hand and, um, you know, treated me like, uh, you know, a long-lost daughter and, you know, how lovely it was to meet me and everything and made me feel so comfortable and relaxed, even though I was, you know, it was like meeting, you know, John Lennon. It was like you couldn't meet, like, a cooler person. Um, It was just so exciting, and she just made me feel just calm and relaxed and just joyful. I mean, it was just joyful to meet her. Um, But I remember being surprised by kind of how tall and uh, sweet. Which the listeners knew you were not short either. So the fact that you would... I'm not short and I'm used to, you know, my my children are now 6'5". So I'm used to tall people. Uh, But she was still, you know, as an, an older person, still quite tall. So um, I was surprised, but yet she seemed there was such a softness about her. Um, yeah, no, she was that. She was that incredible combination of having a tremendous amount of presence and a tremendous amount of warmth all at the same time, and she just sort of enveloped you with her her aura and her energy, which is why I think you know so many people have who maybe met her even in a, a much less professional setting or even just at a book signing felt that you know, well, she would definitely remember them because of how intimate that moment was. And it was just, as I think, a special gift that she had that, that was innate. That's so true. It's, it's kind of the graciousness um, that I feel like doesn't exist very much anymore. And, um, you know, it's, they always say, and it's, and it's true, having met both President Obama and President Clinton, the way that they look at you and shake your hand, you feel like it's just the two of you in that room, yeah. you know, yeah. alone. And that was the way that Julia was. So when she shook your hand and she looked into your eyes and she said something, you felt like, you know, it was the two of you communing, you know, um, and that she was really present at that moment and wanting to kind of... And, and no, and I think that's definitely true. She really was present, just as I imagine those two presidents are. I think certain people have that unique ability, but one of the things is not just graciousness or being polite, it's genuine, and it comes from this genuine interest in other people, but, but it still is quite powerful. 
Exactly. And just, again, one more full circle. Um, I think that's really important and something that I transmit to the kids that I work with. Um, and so, for instance, all the winners of the, the Kids' Day dinner, they would come to the Smithsonian to see Julia's Kitchen and uh, right before we went to the White House. And I would explain to them why Julie was important to me personally. And then I would explain to them that I had shaken um, Julia's hand uh, several times. And so I wanted to shake their hand because I was transmitting Julia's touch to them. So it was like this generational kind of handoff. And I expected them to do the same to their friends. So um, I think that notion of kind of, of meeting someone and shaking their hand and looking into their eyes and knowing that you're having like a, a true connection is an important uh, thing that we want to continue to foster with our kids. Well, no, thank you, Tanya. That That is an absolutely really great way to kind of summarize a Julia moment outside of, you know, a food or a dish, but that it, not just the the power and presence that she had that was so special that you experienced, but the idea of taking that experiencing experience and passing it along to other people, that is terrific. So thank you very much. I think you snuck in more than one Julia moment, but we'll, we'll let you get away with that as one of our first guests. Well, thanks so much, Todd. Thanks for having me. My sincere pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to all our listeners. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact at joyachildfoundation.org. Please like us on Facebook. Just search at Julia Child. You can follow the foundation on Twitter at Julia Child JCF. And I'm Todd, sorry, I'm at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. That's my Twitter handle. Uh, you can learn more about the Julia Child Award itself on juliachildaward.com or ser- search at Julia Child Award on Facebook and Twitter to follow. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Scream.